we will sound our barbaric yops tonight here on episode nine of Oscar Sunday, visiting the 62nd Academy Awards in 1990, talking about the films of 1989. I'm Austin Johnson. I'm Connor Zagari. Poet Society, one of my favorite films of the 80s, my favorite film from 1989, along with Do the Right Thing. They're both great. What about you? This is definitely a big contender for a 1989 favorite. I mean, I went into this film dark uh, back in the day, and it blew my mind the first time. This is, for this show, this will be the second time I've seen this movie, and it is astonishingly good. It's so pure and just, I, I love it. I, I couldn't say enough great things about this. Uh, but if we're going to talk favorite 1989 movie, it's Batman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I know, I know you and, and you, you have some films that you have a heavy allegiance to from 1989. And I, I want to predict those, and that would be Batman, Indiana Jones, Last Crusade. Yeah. And that would be Back to the Future. Two. My, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. The second <laughs> one. 1985, that's your favorite film of all time. So yeah. I figured those three would be kind of at the helm. Yep, and The Burbs is probably number four. So 1989 is a good year. Yes, indeed it is. I wrote a top five for it uh, close to a year ago uh, because in 2019 I wrote for the years that end in nine. I wrote top five films. It is definitely a year that has a lot of, a lot of juice to it. But it's, uh, as far as the Oscars go, one of the most upsetting years oh. because, because a film that you and I both uh, can't really stand yeah. And a film, a film, you know, we're not, we're not alone in that. A film that has not aged well one stinking bit. <laughs> uh, that's, that's Driving Miss Daisy, which, which took the big, the big award at the 62nd Academy Awards. Uh, you watched this film kind of in preparation for this. Yeah. I, I had seen it a few years ago uh, just to see how bad it was. And then I tried to rewatch it and I, I couldn't get through it, man. How about you? I was, I was waiting for the Oscar scene to happen. I was waiting for like, why was this film so celebrated? I was waiting for it and it never came. It was so, we, we kind of went on a rant about this in last week's Filmgasm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, we're going to continue that rant here because this movie is god awful and there's no reason it should ever stand among these other four incredible films. No, no not, not only that, what, what upsets me most is when you just, um, if you're a fan of the Oscars at all, like Connor and I here, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. So if you go on, say, Wikipedia, just to look at some general information, you see Best Picture, Driving Miss Daisy. Most awards, Driving Miss Daisy with four. Most nominations, Driving Miss Daisy with nine. That's, that's not a good representation of 1989. No. At all. At all. At all. I think you agree with me that do the right thing should 100% snag that spot from yeah, it and possibly win. Uh, you know, it, it's just such a travesty that Spike Lee's masterpiece wasn't nominated for Best Picture and yeah. Drive Miss Daisy won. You know, <laughs> this this kind of like white savior, white stupid movie that makes no sense at all to me and is really boring and has a bunch of performances that are phoning it in to me. Yeah. Uh, it makes no sense. Makes no sense. It's a phony movie about i think i I, let me see i I wrote something about it in my review 
Blood, yeah, go, go to it. Go to it. <laughs> yeah, right. I think you gave it. You gave it a five or a... I gave it a six, and okay. that's being very generous. Yeah. Uh, casual racism, lukewarm attempts at comedy. It's an, it makes the audience uneasy. Uh, it's just I. Um, it's a total. It's I, I called it a total tone deaf misfire, because it wants to be that film that like brings you know, white people and black people together. Like, you know, we're not so different, you and I. We're, but it never even touches that conversation. It, I mean, Morgan Freeman is a, their driver the whole time. He's nothing but. It's never even hinted that he, like, she considers them friends, but she wouldn't invite him to the Martin Luther King dinner. She would never ask him how he's doing. They're not friends, despite what she might think. And I don't like that the movie kind of treats it like, they are friends and they've always been friends. Like, no, address the situation is what it is. And we might get somewhere, but you don't. So why should I be invested in this? Yeah, exactly. And that, that's all those reasons are exactly why we chose dead poet society instead to, <laughs> to focus on here. So that dead poet society will be the film we will be diving into later in the episode here into the plot and what we think about it and bringing up what awards it was nominated for. Uh, what it won, uh, what we think it should have won. Yeah. Uh, but but it is very difficult to talk about the 62nd Academy Awards without bringing up, yeah, the one of the worst wins of all time. You know, I think it is, you know, you haven't seen Crash yet. I'm not a big fan of that one, but I, I think Miss Daisy is worse. So I, I would call it, from what I've seen, the worst best picture win of all time. So would I, from what I've seen. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I know there's another one that you and I, uh, agree on that's uh i would uh 1961 i believe west side story yeah that's a weak film but i think it's watchable i think it's got some redeeming qualities this yeah yeah dragon it's miss not daisy. on the same yeah it's not on the same level as uh as dragon miss daisy <laughs> De dead poet society i want to ask you because yes. th this film is uber important to both of us and it, it kind of kind of has this effect on us we both love um literature, English, uh, all these things that are involved in writing and reading and to, to have a teacher like Keating, right. Is uh, someone that you, someone that you wish maybe you could have had in high school. Um, yeah. He's the, he's the kind of teacher that can really, really change you because he believed that words and ideas could change, could change things. And so if a teacher, if a teacher actually has that confidence and that way about them, um, I, I didn't personally have a teacher like that. I can't say. Um, I'm not going to blame my teacher for not being <laughs> John Keating. But, I, but I, I think if a kid goes through that and has that kind of camaraderie with a teacher, I think, it's, I think it can be very valuable. Did you have anything like that growing up? I, I, had, some, I had something similar, not to this extent. I had a, yeah. um, a history teacher in eighth grade. Uh, his name was Mr. Smith. I'm not using that as a placeholder. His name really was Mr. Smith. And um, he used films and like acting out and like really cool creative ways to teach us history, to keep us engaged. He took an interest in like the things I would do, the things I would write. My I have a very long time investment in history. I love history. I'm fascinated by it. And he could tell. So he fostered that love of history and really like made me want to be a teacher. And uh, I'll always be grateful for that. The teacher, I, teachers like John Keating, people who really go the extra mile to 
not just relate to their students, but to care about their students' lives, about to, you know, to want to be an influence because they want their students to, you know, kind of pass the buck, you know, bring that same love into their life, into their lives in different ways. Those teachers are the salt of the earth and they're so rare. And when you find one, it's magical. Truly, truly. And it doesn't really matter what age, you know, uh, you can yeah. be in elementary, middle school, high school, college. Um, even if you go back to school and you're older to have that kind of connection with the teacher. Uh, so yeah, Keating, that would be obviously Robin Williams character that we're speaking about his impact uh, as just a movie character was so profound on me. Uh, I first saw Dead Poet Society when I was living in Romania. So I had recently dropped out of high school. And, you know, so I was very confused on like what my place was in the world as far as intellectually. Yeah. Where do I, you know, dropping out of high school, I got my GED. You know, people would immediately have their, you know, certain judgments or thoughts, rightfully so, about hearing what is this young kid doing with his GED? You know, why would he drop out of high school? Well, you know, I moved to a different country and while I was there, I, you know, watched a bunch of different kinds of movies and Dead Poets was one I tripped up on and it, it had a profound impact on me because I was supposed to be, you know, <laughs> in school with my friends. And so I really looked at, you know, like Todd Anderson, uh, that character, Ethan Hawke's character. I looked at those characters as like sort of my classmates in a way, you know, Knox Overstreet, Charlie. Uh, Nuanda. <laughs> the, the, these guys became my buddies and they have continued to do that. And I, I can't get through this movie without crying. And I know what you mean, yeah. it's very, and not, not just like once, but it's like multiple times. The, the Todd Anderson scene where he does the poetry in front of the class, I get choked up just talking about it right now when he brings up the blanket and the students are laughing, but he, you know, Keating's like, keep, keep going, like, you know, and tells him, don't don't you forget this, you know? And then, you know, of course there's, there's scenes later in the movie that are just profound. If you're a kid and you see this. So I've always tried to tell anyone that I know that's younger, who may be 17, 18, this is a movie you got to see. <laughs> you got to see it at the right time. So my question to you is when did you see it first? I first saw this film in, uh, 2017. Uh, Back when Robin Williams uh, tragically passed away, I made it my mission to watch as many of his films as I could get my hands on. And Dead Poet Society was a film that I had, uh, I had not been able to find at the time. So it took a while before I finally got to that movie. And I loved it. I was captivated by this movie. And uh, it was a, it's become just like a, a personal favorite of Robin Williams' career. And uh, just a beautiful movie about finding yourself, finding your voice. I, yeah, I adore it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of everything you want out of a film. And then you, as you get older uh, and, and watch it a few more times, you, you realize how technically wonderful this film is. You use the cinematography from John Steele, who, who did Mad Max Fury Road. You know, this guy... This guy, you know, his potential, his ability is, you know, through the roof. And some of the stuff in Dead Poets that I just didn't quite realize the first time I watched it when I was younger, it, there's some astonishing work with the camera where Robin Williams is really just in command of that classroom. 
and it's because the camera is moving around him, you know, in circles and it makes that classroom seem, seem so much bigger than it is. Like it's this world these kids are in because we don't ever see them in the other classrooms. You know, we're just, we're with fucking Keating. We're building this relationship with Keating and, and these students. It, it, it is really beautiful. It's poetic, just like um, the teachings that Keating has, right, about poetry uh, and how it can truly change the world. Uh, do, do, you, do you really like uh, find poetry to, to have that kind of impact on you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I love to read. I've always loved to read. Yeah. So literature yeah. itself, I always, I've always felt a pull to it. And poetry in, in the right hands at the right time can really, you know, get you. It can make you think about your life. It can make you think about the people around you. It can make you think about your decisions. It can make yeah. you, it can push you in the right direction. It can push you in the wrong direction. Poetry is extremely powerful. And I love how this movie acknowledges that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's such a thing, beautiful I, medium. Yeah, I wanted to bring up the lighting in this film. Oh, There's yes. a scene uh, when they first go to class, they go to a bunch of their different classrooms and every class is dimly lit. It's taught by the same, you know, don't you test me, you know, homework on my desk, that first thing kind of yep. teacher. And then they go to Keating's classroom and it's brightly lit and it's warm. And he walks in, he doesn't like, he just walks in whistling. Like he, he's in his own little world. <laughs> It's beautiful. I, that transition, like you can already tell, this is not going to be your average classroom in this place. And I, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and it's not going to be your average teacher. No, it's not. <laughs> Who, you know, his first, his, you know, first lecture is he brings them out to look at pictures of students of the past. And it's like, oh my gosh, man, if, if this guy is really thinking you know, from, from his perspective as an, as an adult and as a teacher, he's trying to remember what it was like to be 17 and 18 and, and find what buttons are like the right ones to press. Cause you know, ultimately we, we, you know, we find out Keating loves, he just loves to teach no matter where it's at. That's why he's at Welton. Um, yeah. Dead Poets, it performed well at the Oscars as far as, you know, it got, it got some nominations and it got the one win. And we're definitely going to be talking about those. I, I do want to ask before we get into, cause it's, they're, they're pretty big awards that it was nominated for and won. Yeah. Is there any, is there anything minor that you think definitely should have got a nomination or a win? Um, let me check. Minor. John Seal's cinematography is, is definitely my call. That's something that when I rewatched it last night for the whatever, a hundredth time, I, I was just blown away by how well it moves. I think this should have been up for best score. There you go. Great call. Yeah. The music Great is very call. important in this film, especially in the final scene. Oh and uh, yeah, I think score for sure. Um, cinematography is a good call. Uh, I think that's maybe art direction. I think the, uh, the, the school is very uh, beautiful school. It's a very, I think the, the uh, classrooms are nice. It's a, you know, it's your, it's a fifties kind of prep school. I think yeah. it captures that very well, but I mean, I don't really have anything to compare it to. <laughs> so, but uh, probably not art direction. I'll take that back. But definitely score. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. If you want to throw art direction, production design, that whole family of stuff. I, I, you know, I went to a private school and it was not nearly as nice as this one. But it, it, <laughs> capture, it, it captures the – I, I, I don't want to 
word this incorrectly. It captures this. There's a sort of fear that you have when you're uh, in a private school of just, there's so many mistakes you can make because of the rules that are in place. And so I, I just remember being like fearful, like, Oh shit, do I have the wrong socks on? Do I not have the right pen? Uh, is my uniform or is my hair, my, I would get in trouble. My hair's kind of long. You can see Connor, my hair would, I would get in trouble because my hair was touching my collar, stuff like that. So, you know, you, you just have this fear of like, well, what's the next little thing that I'm going to do that's going to get me in trouble. And this movie captures that so well by just the setting and how, how the school looks, the four pillars of Welton, all that stuff is spot on, spot on. Isn't it disgusting how schools like that prepare you for the future by making you think that like there isn't, there are no mistakes in the real world. I mean, it's, it's just, <laughs> I hate that like student, you know, kids are treated like they're not people in those places. Like, your goals, your likes, your dislikes, your feelings, they don't matter. It's just about what you can do for the school. I, I despise prep schools. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, that's a touchy subject, you know, and there's definitely films that I look to uh, and poets is one of them. And I would say um, Rushmore 1998 from Wes Anderson. That's a film that was filmed in Texas and is at a private school and just makes, makes some sense to me as far as the layout. Um, yeah, man, this is a powerful film. Uh, it, you know, four, four nominations of those, which one do you want to start with? Um, well, I guess we start with, I guess we start with director. Uh, Peter Weir was nominated alongside, um, Jim Sheridan for My Left Foot, Kenneth Branagh for Henry V, Woody Allen for Crimes and Misdemeanors, and the winner, Oliver Stone, for Born on the Fourth of July. Um, Peter Weir did a great job with this movie, uh, but I, I think that this does go to Oliver Stone. <laughs> okay, okay. I like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. I really like Born on the Fourth of July. <laughs> uh, I, I know you got to watch that one recently as well. Um, yeah. Was that your was that your first time or were you revisiting it? That was my second time. My first time was for a college project. And, okay, there you uh, go. I thought it was a great movie. I was actually yeah, very excited yeah. to revisit that for this. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good piece. I, I really am. Um, I think I'm partial on this one. Yeah. To Jim Sheridan for my left foot. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think I think I think that film at this point is is uh, pretty underrated. And need kind of deserves reevaluation and might contain Daniel Day Lewis's best performance. I don't know, but I think I think Sheridan does stuff as far as um, this is this is not an easy story to make exciting as you know uh, with, with so few characters and such uh, contained spaces. And yeah. I find those I find those kinds of movies to be fascinating when they're done well. So my, my left foot here is, is the winner for me, but th- this, is a, this is a good group. I think Peter Weir, I think his best chance at taking best director would have been for The Truman Show. Uh, agreed, agreed. Yeah. Which one day we'll do on the show and that'll be great. I can't wait to do The Truman Show. And that's 1998. So the thing about that is it doesn't really <laughs> matter. It doesn't really matter because the Coen brothers should have won all that shit. So... <laughs> <laughs> And they weren't up for anything. So, 
Uh, yeah, I said best chance. I didn't say he was going to take it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I just had to bring up the fact that Big Lebowski got completely sniped. Uh, nobody cared until later, regrettably. You know, sometimes it takes a while. But yeah, man, yeah. I don't know if I could take that. Be- I don't know if I could take it away from Spielberg for saving Private Ryan. I can. I. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and my my man Roger Deakins is doing some incredible shit in Big Lebowski that people just don't even want to talk about. They don't realize what they're seeing. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not just some stupid fraternity movie. Pr- trust us. <laughs> oh, it's a masterpiece. It's the yeah, yeah. masterpiece. And, it's uh, not even it's it's not even just like a, a cult classic. I don't even like that anymore. No, it is a grade A classic film. It's in the National Film Registry, so it's no slouch. <laughs> exactly. Yes. 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 Uh, Robin Williams was up for Best Actor, and uh, he was up against Morgan Freeman for Driving Miss Daisy, right. Tom Cruise for Born on the Fourth of July. Okay. Kenneth Branagh for Henry V. Okay. And the winner, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis for My Left Foot. Now, I love Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July and Robin Williams' Dead Poet Society, but nobody is taking this Oscar away from Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Shit. I agree. This is, this is tough. You know, I, you, Robin Williams, uh, we're going to speak about him quite a lot as this, as this episode goes on. Yes. A, a true titan, true hero of comedy, drama, uh, film in general one of one of our favorite actors here at film guys and we we adore his his work yeah we'll def, definitely going to bring up other films that he's been in uh, on this show absolutely but holy shit <laughs> daniel daniel day lewis if you haven't seen my left foot um is it on something right now it's on hbo okay there you go hbo max yeah okay uh, hbo go all that stuff hey uh go check that out <laughs> uh it's a pretty it's actually a fairly short film you know, it, yeah. uh, it, it has one of those intimidating kind of feels to it. No, it's not. It's a great movie and it has this performance from DDL uh, that, that just shakes you. It shakes your soul, shakes yeah. your soul. And it's his first, you know, uh, first win at the Oscars, right? And then, you know, follows it with a couple more in <laughs> <laughs> uh, nominations on top of that. Is it your favorite Daniel Day-Lewis or do you think it's the best or do you kind of keep those hand in hand? This, the best Daniel Day-Lewis performance, that is a very difficult call to make. Um, I think it's his most uh, difficult performance. I think he gives it everything. I think he proved to the world that he was going to be the next like Marlon Brando, the next like amazing actor who's going to dominate a generation. Uh, Personally, my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis performance is Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York. Uh, but that's just me. I, mean, I, I don't think that that performance is better than Christy Brown or Daniel Plainview or Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Uh, I think it's, it comes down to personal preference with Daniel Day-Lewis because he is incredible every single time. Yeah, no kidding, man. I, you, you, you pointed out uh, old Tan- Daniel Plainview. That would, <laughs> that would have to be my favorite. Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Definitely a film we'll bring up here one day. Um, he's pretty frightening in Gangs of New York and There Will Be Blood. So that that I really like that one too. But I also recently watched uh, a film called My Beautiful Laundrette from 1985. Oh. So that's before my left foot. And that, he's incredible in that movie. He plays a kind of punk guy from, from England and 
he's um he's this uh he's this gay character who's just extremely extremely you know popping all the time kind of like just you're always i mean as usual you always want to watch every move that he makes daniel day lewis uh, he's something else but but my left foot you certainly has the to me has the most difficult uh most challenging you know all that stuff he, he's really really going for it in that movie but but the dude's locked in so like you said i have no problem with anybody liking or loving any one of those films you know last mohicans um, you know, that's, he's incredible on that. Uh, Lincoln, you pointed out, he's, <laughs> he literally dissolves into that, uh, phantom threat. This guy, this guy doesn't miss. He doesn't. And he, his whole career from the beginning to his now retirement, unfortunately. Uh, but it's his like second or third retirement. He'll be back. But, um, he never d- had a paycheck gig. Like he never, you know, n- did something for the money. He never sold out. Like he, cared about every single performance he gave in his entire career and it shows yeah nobody else has that kind of record (laughs) no so so the question is with ddl is do you do you want because you know when you're talking about the best actors you kind of i think personally you kind of have to take into account that someone like bobby de niro has just churned out bam 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 roll 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 and has shown and and has shown that he can be really really effective in a film like godfather or a film like Meet the Parents. Yeah. And so there's, there's serious value in that kind of like uh, longevity, that filmography of all these different kinds of roles, but there's also serious value in never missing. <laughs> yeah. And so when you're talking about who's better, it's, it, there really is no right answer. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm not saying it's DDL and Bobby D. I'm just pointing those guys out because um, De Niro's career is so long now. It's spanned over, you know, six decades of, of film. So uh, do you kind of stick in one camp in that, or do you kind of just like, ah, on it, on each day it changes <laughs> when it comes to like the greatest of all time. I, I think you can't just look at like five or six movies. You have to take into account everything. Yeah. And a lot of actors will just, you know, take the paycheck gigs and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, some paycheck gigs are great movies, but yeah. when an actor just never sacrifices the craft, it's incredible because it never happens, but it's rare. Daniel day Lewis is one of those actors. And I think that that gives him major points for being considered, you know, the greatest actor of all time. Yeah. Yeah. I cer I certainly, if I, on most days I would, I would, I would consider DDL the greatest of all time. Like, you know, take Al Pacino for instance. I mean, that man did, you know, the Godfather, he did Serpico, he did, Scent of a Woman, he did Scarface, but he also did Jack and Jill. <laughs> so, yeah, lose points in my book for that. I, I, that's my point is I think you take away points if you were in a movie and you, you know, phoned it in or, yeah, the film, the film wasn't good itself. Like, sorry, you were a part of that. And it doesn't just, take, you know, it doesn't take greatness away from Scarface, but it does, you know, cost you some points. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I, th- I think this this is this is how it is, and you know, if you're looking at an actor's career, director's career, or or I think this goes hand in hand with like a, a athlete's career. Yeah, if you see if you see holes, oh, they didn't make the playoffs. Oh, he had a bad season. You know that you got to dock points. Uh, Game of Thrones, the great gr- great example. Some awesome seasons in there, but you got to dock points for that 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 bad sloppy ending. Um, yeah, 
did, didn't stick the landing. So you, uh, the whole show can't be, can't be perfect if the, you know, part of it is not. That's just how it goes. Exactly. Exactly. That's per- Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So, yeah, DDL, man, uh, I, I, again, a guy who's going to definitely come up again. We, we talked about him, uh, I want to say, what, a couple months ago on Gangs of New York on Filmgasm? Yeah. Yes. Uh, we, we had a blast with that episode. That was a bonus to um, Shutter Island from 2010. So we did kind of a Scorsese one to uh, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio experience. <laughs> and it, 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 was, it, it was a lot of fun. And Gangs of New York is a film that you have brought up that would be fun to kind of bring over to your Oscar Sunday show at some point. Yeah, kind of give it a different uh, examination. Yeah, I think that's something we're going to do. Uh, obviously, we're doing this every Sunday. So the list of films is endless. You know, it's never going to yeah. end. So we will be revisiting films like that uh, that have appeared on Filmgasm before. Yeah, not for a long time, though. You know, let it digest a little, but they yes. will eventually. Yeah, point is, we're not going away. No, no, no. We're just starting. I mean, this is episode nine. <laughs> we're, just, we're just starting this show. We're having a fucking blast. Um, so yeah, I think we're both agreed. Daniel Day-Lewis takes best actor no matter what, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. Who do you put in second place on that chart? Robin Williams. I do. I love Tom. I lo- I, you know, that's, that's hard to say. Like, you know, obviously Tom Cruise off the screen is not, is a very interesting guy, but I, I actually do love, I like, I really like some of his 80s stuff, some of his 90s stuff. I mean, what he's doing in Magnolia, holy piss. And I, I really like Born on the Fourth of July, but I, I think Rob Williams Keating, the work is Keating. There's a few scenes that, yeah, that there's just something he's doing, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's why we kind of love acting. I think Robin Williams brings kind of a tragic backstory to Keating that we never get to see. Like you can tell that this man's tortured by something. That something yeah. like he's almost like re- here to like redeem himself. And I love that we never find out about that. It like like makes us give it you know, makes us uh, develop our own thoughts on him. But that, yes. uh, that approach to Keating, as opposed to, you know, Robin Williams is known for being, you know, high energy, wacky. To subdue that for Keating and make like a very tame character, I think really speaks to his talents. And I totally think he could have taken this if Daniel Day-Lewis had passed on my left foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But again, Tom Cruise, who I think is a very strange, very weird, off-putting person, is I think he's a phenomenal actor who really doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, and agreed. His role as Ron Kovic is fucking amazing, and uh, yeah, just any other year could have been him. This is a there's some there's some hammers here. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think those three are definitely ahead of everybody, though. Yeah, I don't. I think Morgan Freeman does not deserve to be here for this one. Yeah, and, I don't even. Yeah, yeah, we don't even. He's He's, he's not even trying. And I haven't seen Henry V, so I can't judge that one. I've, I, it's, it's been a while for that one. But, you know, I, I like Kenneth. Um, he's interesting director, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I like him. I do, too, and I'm sure it's great. Then we have Best Picture. The films that were up for this one. My Left Foot, Field of Dreams, Dead Poet Society, Born on the Fourth of July, and The Winner... Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, so to prep for this, I watched all, f- all five of these movies. And I think this absolutely should have gone to Dead Poet Society. Yeah, I agree. Of this group, 100%. Uh, 
it's not even close, right? It's no. uh, driving Miss Daisy is miles behind these others. Uh, Field of Dreams, good movie, solid movie, good, good, uh, good rewatch, right? It's one that yeah. you can kind of, it's one you can throw on. It's a solid. I think we both would call it a solid eight. It's just, it's there. It's comforting. It's gonna be okay when you're watching Field of Dreams. Yeah, not a sure. best picture winner though. Not a no. best picture winner. No. Um, Drive Miss Daisy. Yeah, we can. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we can. You know, Born on the Fourth of July. I really like solid stuff, but I also don't think it's quite a best picture winner. Uh, Dead Poet Society is a movie that kind of has all those things intertwined. It's rewatchable. It makes you cry, kind of impacts you, and it's aged really well. And you know, this this is kind of looking at things on the darker side with the latter half of the movie. And as you watch Neil's character and with um, the tragic death of Robin Williams, the movie becomes, you know, 10 times as impactful. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Um, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. I think it elevated to this whole new place after he passed away of like, Oh man, this movie is what he's doing in it is so special. And to see the character that he was really, really honing in on, you know, it's just, it's devastating. Absolutely devastating. And I think you can say that about a lot of Robin Williams movies, uh, looking back. For sure. And uh, this is certainly one of them. And that combined with just this incredible movie, I don't see how this lost. I just, I don't understand what the Academy saw in Driving Miss Daisy that it would award it top honors over three acceptable movies and one phenomenal movie. Like what yeah. happened? I, I don't get it. I never will. This will be a mystery forever. Well, yeah. And you know, um, we'll bring it back up now. Uh, Spike Lee's masterpiece not being here is it. It's one of the reasons that I, I understand why someone of color would hate the Oscars. Yeah. Because it's, because it's a fucking slap to the face to award the highest film honor, really, really, as far as this stuff goes, in the world, to Driving Miss Daisy when a movie the same year came out that's actually doing what that movie failed to do, right? 100%. Yeah, it's a travesty. Show, show it shows an authentic setting in America and actual it's actually trying to put you inside the inside the, you know in the shoes of of black Americans in in America and specifically young black Americans in in America with Spike Lee's character uh, you know Mookie living in Brooklyn and you're watching this story unfold and it's first off, it's a brilliant movie. It, it pops like crazy. It's beautiful. The costumes are incredible. The dialogue is incredible, but then the, the ten tenacity from Spike Lee and the quote at the end and the final scene of, of police brutality and violence is like, Holy shit. This movie, this movie is one of those movies that I think like no matter what year it comes out, it should be talked about as far as being one of the winners. You know, it's, it comes out 90. It comes out because it could come out now and still be relevant. That's, that's what's so sad. And so for yeah. it to not be recognized as one of these five films is 
truly a it's a it's highway fucking robbery is what it is and it, it it's one of the things that makes you angry about the oscars you're trying to defend it and say hey it's you know this award show that honors films and you know but people are like yeah but does it only honor white films and you're like ah fuck you know and this is one of the things that 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 can be pointed out to where it's like why would you award this bullshit kind of sloppy movie that doesn't really go anywhere and driving miss daisy and leave the one that does what movies are supposed to do, which is interpret directors and writers and actors are supposed to interpret life for us on the screen, right? And show us stories that we can relate to and escape with. And Do the Right Thing does exactly that. <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you think about that? I'm sorry, I went on a little tangent there. No, I, I think that, um, and I notice this a lot, and I don't think this is a very brave stance to take, but... Films typically, uh, and this is just what I've noticed. I can't speak for everything because I haven't seen every movie ever made. Yeah. But films about the black experience made by white filmmakers near, almost always miss the mark because they have no frame of reference. They don't understand that world. They don't understand how black people are treated in society. So you have you know, films like by Spike Lee and Ava DuVernay. They reflect an accurate portrayal of that life because they know what it feels like. And Driving Miss Daisy and Green Book and Gone with the Wind are going to fuck up because these are white people telling these stories. And they're going to slant in a white state of mind. I I don't know if I'm explaining this well, but that's just the way I've seen it. No, I think you nailed it. I think you fucking nailed it. Uh, it's, It's so difficult for someone... To, to go through with it, right? You know, yeah. if, you, if you and I are trying to create a story about, uh, yeah, a, uh, a black kid living, you know, growing up in San Anto- here in San Antonio, Texas, you and I are going to have a very hard time figuring out how to actually tell the right story. Yeah. We're going to have to go to different resources. We're going to have to find people to help us write this story. Uh, it's not going to be something that can come from our heart or our brain. And be and be truly authentic. I, I I truly agree with you in that. So when when you do see a Barry Jenkins telling a story like Moonlight, a Bong Joon Ho telling a story like Parasite, that's the shit that should be awarded. And so when it does do it right, you're like, there you go, Oscars. There you go. There you go. Well done. Well done. Well done. <laughs> and it makes you proud. But you you still have these fuck ups from the past that you have to bring up. You just, you, you just, you can't, you can't disregard them. And I, I, you know, there's friends that I have that are just like, who gives a shit about the Oscars because of stuff like this. Yeah. And I can't say that I don't understand them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Exactly. But as we saw with, you know, Green Book, the Oscars are still making these mistakes. They're still not understanding yep. the source of these stories. And, uh, I'm hoping things get better. Parasite's win was a, was a big step in the right direction. Uh, yeah. Here's hoping. I mean, I, I don't know how the Oscars are going to handle it this year, but it's looking like the Five Bloods is, is going to be the front runner, which is awesome. Spike Lee might finally nab a directing Oscar. And uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, well, yeah, this year anything can happen, right? In the future, we don't know. But it's, yeah, you know, talking about the past, this is definitely one we bring up. Uh, that brings us to the one that Dead Poets Society actually did win. Yes, Best Original Screenplay. And the, uh, the ones it defeated, When Harry Met Sally by Nora Ephron, 
Sex, Lies, and Videotape by Steven Soderbergh, Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, and Crimes and Misdemeanors by Woody Allen. So the only two Oscars Do the Right Thing was up for was Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello, <laughs> the only white people in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, I was waiting to bring that up. It's hilarious. I, I think that's hilarious. Now, Danny Aiello doesn't necessarily do a bad job. I just think that it's, it's a weird thing to the way that the Oscars treat to do the right thing is pretty, pretty fucking shitty. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm, I personally, uh, you know, we'll eventually talk about do the right thing straight up on the show. And I, I don't think I would personally have any of the performances up, but pretty much everything else it would be nominated or win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think that dead poet society deserved to beat to do the right thing for best screenplay? No. Okay. I don't. It's so hard to say. I mean, I love both of them so much, but no, no, no. I, th- I think there's far too many scenes of we're going on 30 years now of over 30 years now of um, relevance. Yeah. And you know, that's just a personal preference in, in with film and, you know, Dead Poets Society certainly has it as well, but do the right thing on a much higher level. And in, in my opinion, it, it's, it's this thing that is very human and I would consider a must see, uh, even if you're not like a film buff or super into that sort of thing. I think it's one of those things you should check out. Here's a, uh, one of the best black black american directors of all time really in his you know in his groove uh with with do the right thing so yeah and and i I think there's there's too many scenes of this dialogue that's yeah just too important too relevant okay i'm i'm still in favor with dead poet society taking this one totally fair i think this film also has a lot to say and oh yeah uh, delivers it in a very poignant way and uh, it's a story that, like you had said, it, uh, Peter Weir did a great job of making this not boring. Like, it could have been boring the way they established this. I think it starts with the screenplay. And I, th- I think that uh, Tom Schulman yeah. did a fucking amazing job translating, like, just this idea to film. So, well, yeah. You, you, um, you know, something that I've gathered you know as we've talked about films more and more in, here on the podcast is and something that you've said is, is coming of age films are not totally in your bag yeah yeah but but i but i i have also noticed that you are willing to put your put your uh guard down and if it's a good film you're going to admit it you don't care yeah so that's, that's the way i see everything like every film yeah so you know this is a this is a weird comparison but dead poet society i you know I feel like we both just love that group of kids. You're like, Oh my gosh, these guys, the stuff they're saying is incredible. That's the writing. I feel, I feel like when this is a more recent film, when we walked out of mid nineties, we're, we're both just kind of stunned by Jonah Hill's ability to write for, for young actors. Like the stuff coming out of their mouth is exactly how young kids talk. And that's what we get in dead poets. When you have Nwanda smoking and, you know, constantly putting it out in the ground and all of them kind of like bickering and it's just, it's just genius stuff. So yeah, I have no problem with dead poets taking this one. I adore the writing in it. Fantastic. What do you think it should have been up for that? It was not, I would definitely go John seal cinematography. 
uh, my favorite shot of the film is uh, towards the beginning. Uh, you got the staircase and it's kind of spiraling and you're looking up at the students and they're all excited, nervous about school. And it, it just kind of brings you into this place. Again, it could be boring. Some movies about schools are boring. Not this one. Yeah, true. If anything, you're sucked in almost immediately. Yeah, no kidding. I think that Ethan Hawke should have been up for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> My boy, Ethan. <laughs> you, you, know, you know I love Ethan, yeah. Yeah, I think you kick Dan Aykroyd right out of there and you give Ethan Hawke a nomination. Uh, I would be in favor, honestly. I think Kurtwood Smith uh, could be up for Best Supporting Actor for this. Okay. Just because he's such a... He's not an evil man. He's just a... He doesn't get it. He's a domineering father and it's tough to, you know, it's tough to, to like that kind of a character. And he really sells just the, the worst qualities a father can have. Yeah. No kidding. But it's not out of, you know, it's not malicious. It's not, he's not trying to ruin his son's life. He's, if anything, he's trying to make sure his son has a better life than he had. But the consequences of those decisions are fucking horrific. Uh, yeah, I think that though, that's what I would give this, uh, film in the additional Oscar nominations, best supporting actor for either Ethan Hawke or Kurtwood Smith. Yeah. E- Ethan is like, it's such an amazing career that he's had since then. Right. Uh, from, from that to, you know, reality bites and before sunrise coming into, you know, training day. And, you know, you and I love, uh, what's that film with Philip Seymour Hoffman? Uh, before the devil knows you're dead. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Uh, you know, then, then you bring it all the way around to like boyhood. I, I am first reformed. I just, I adore this man's career. Uh, yeah, a link later man thrown through. Yes. Yeah. These podcasts have made me come around on Ethan Hawke, which I didn't think was possible. <laughs> if, if, if we've done nothing with Filmgasm, I'm, with Filmgasm Productions, I'm glad you like Ethan Hawke now. <laughs> That's that's mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well done. First Reformed is one I'd like to bring over to Oscar Sunday. Kind of revisit that's that. A, that's a tough one, right? Paul Schrader's masterpiece from 2018. Uh, yeah. A real, real tough, gritty, you know, girthy story that makes you makes you think about a lot of shit. Yeah. Um, oof. Yeah, that's a good movie. Well, I feel like that was not a proper. Like, we didn't have the, the right tools on Filmgasm to analyze that movie the way we did. I think with Oscar Sunday and with all the experience we've had since, I think we will definitely be able to give that film a proper analysis and actually, you know, find something in it. So that would, that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm always down to rewatch that movie, so. <laughs> For sure. Dead Poet Society has an IMDb score of 8.1. Rotten Tomatoes score 84%. And it grossed about 235 million bucks off a $16 million budget, which is phenomenal for incredible 80s drama. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I guess with that, we should uh, get into the plot of this thing. Start. Let's see. <laughs> so our story takes place in 1950s New England at a prestigious prep school called Welton Academy. The year is beginning, and all the students are driving up with their super aggressively oppressive parents who 
all of them are just, you know, are they're just here so their parents can say, oh, our boy is a Welton boy. <laughs> like there's no, uh, it sucks. You know, I, I come from a loving family who always encouraged whatever, you know, my decisions, you know, my own life. And I can't imagine being forced into anything like this. Yeah, especially where you're in a school where it's looked at. at I've always thought this to be very strange. Any school that only has one gender. Yeah, yeah. First off, that's, in my opinion, very problematic for, for reasons that people should be able to explore their gender and be able to explore their sexuality. So if you put them in a school where they're, you're a boy, everybody's a boy here. Okay, well, you're eliminating uh, some possibilities and opportunities from some people. Yeah. Um, and who they actually are. So that's a problem for me already. Like as a, you know, I have a daughter now. And so you think about these things, like if I'm going to put her in school, I will certainly never do it in a school like this. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's mind control. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to, we talked about whiplash last week. Uh, (laughs) Also, also an intense school. They're trying here, here at Welton, they're trying to like break these kids down and when you hear that shit from the Pritchard book in their English class of what poetry is, like, are you kidding me? You know, it's really, yeah. really bothersome. This is a school that breaks spirits. It's a school that eliminates individuality. It destroys any hope these kids ever have of finding their own voice. That's yeah. why Keating is so important. And oh, just, I hate this school. Every teacher is just the worst person. I mean, why would you become a teacher if you hate kids? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, you know what I thought when I when I, the first time I watched this, I was like, man, I really want to skateboard there. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thought at seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Todd Anderson, Ethan Hawke, is lonely. He's shy, and his older brother was like the valedictorian superstar of Welton, and everybody is constantly reminding him of that. These shoes he's having to stand in are way too fucking big. Welton excellence, Mr. (laughs) Anderson. Yeah. It's, it's so frustrating. Um, You're watching Todd. Who's just, yeah, he's just a kid. Just wants to be a kid. Wants to have a normal experience. And (laughs) right away. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, new kids are fucking stiff. (laughs) You know, he's just, it, this world moves, moves, moves fucking swift for him. Yeah. And you, he doesn't want to be here. His parents are basically just, you know, all right, call us when our kid's a winner. <laughs> and they, they yeah, fuck dude. off. Yeah, dude. Yeah, like, hey, we're just going to drop off this, you know, this clay, make a, make a pot out of it. I want <laughs> it to look good. Like, fuck, man, this is a child. <laughs> yeah, it's their kid. And they don't, none of the parents treat their kids like human beings in this movie. Uh that's why, you know, they all respond to Keating because he's the only one in their lives who treats them like people and, you know, asks them questions about what they want and encourages their creativity. And, oh, man. <laughs> um, so Todd ends up rooming with Neil Perry, a friendly, ambitious student who has serious problems with his dad. Uh, Neil's father is demanding, overbearing, and has already planned out his entire future. He is to, he's going to Welton, then he's going to Harvard, then he's going to be a doctor. 
that's the plan. There is no wiggle room in this plan. That is Neil's plan. And if he deviates, dad's going to kick his ass. And uh, that kind of pressure, man. I mean, from the one thing he wanted to do was be on the, the school paper. And dad said, no, that's too much. Yeah. Well, you know, well, yeah. And I, I, yeah, it sucks. You know, I think both of us are in agreement on a lot of things with this film. We both love it and both hate some of the like antics of some of the characters. And right away, the way he approaches his son is like, I just, I, I, I would have a hard time not, you know, telling him off, <laughs> you know, if I would have been one of the other kids, because he immediately walks in the room is like, oh, I think you're taking too much extracurricular and treats extracurricular like it's just this nothing like phony not going to get you into a good college type thing and it's really frustrating because he's like yeah but they're relying on me and i'm like head editor you know like i kind of take that seriously because i'm a senior i want to make welton proud and his dad's like yeah but yeah it's not going to help you you know get your phd so well well the way dad handles that is Neil is like, but dad, I can't, you know, they're relying on me. And Oh yeah. 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 Can I talk to you outside for a second? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Don't ever talk back to me in front of the kids ever again. Who the hell do you think you are? You just like, look, dad, I just want to write the paper. Well, I said, no. So you're gone. Like Jesus. Yeah. And he, and he, and then he manipulates his son by going like, you know how, you know how important this is to your mother. (sighs) You dick. You were, you're just as bad as Terrence Fletcher, you bastard. Yeah, he's the same brand of a sociopath who should never have kids. I didn't, I didn't quite realize the parallels of Whiplash and Dead Poet Society, um, but that's what we did last week. Yeah, and I'm, now I'm finding some similar tones yeah. here. Same with The Great Dictator and Dr. Strangelove. We're doing a great job with the pairings here, man. Just, just they're throwing them out there. Next week's going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk about that later. Yes, indeed. So, Neil reluctantly drops out of the school paper and uh, everyone got to see a glimpse of dear old dad. And they're like, Dude. Who, 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 hold on, hold on. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I hate to cut you off there, but yeah, I yeah. feel, I feel like, I feel like Kurtwood Smith is not, should we tell the people who that really is? Yeah. Uh, you ever heard of a, a guy named red Foreman? <laughs> if not, he's going <laughs> to stick his foot up your ass. We're all all right. <laughs> And yeah. if you want to go even further back, uh, RoboCop, Clarence Boddicker, my friend. Bam. <laughs> yeah, Kerwood Smith has been, he's been there the whole time. I fucking love this guy. He doesn't get that enough 70s show. Yeah, that 70s show is just like massive. You know, it gains, you know, these shows that come on to streaming services and, you know, Netflix, they just gain an even bigger fandom, you know, fan club. And yeah, like everybody knows the theme song, you know, yeah, it's, it's one of those, yeah. What's a four-letter word for disappointment? Eric. <laughs> oh, Classic. man. Classic. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so the semester begins with an orientation uh, led by the headmaster, Nolan, this stern, old, lonely man who can't bend over because the stick rammed up his ass would break. And he, he states the four pillars of Welton Academy, tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence. Uh, <laughs> okay, all, all four of those are phony as hell. Like, yeah. Okay, so 
uh, like honor you know well, every school that's one of their pillars like for fuck's sake and excellence like of course you want to be excellent you know those are such like phony who cares you're welton come up with something new <laughs> And then discipline, the fact that you, like, encourage, like, punishing your kids is a little fucked up. Yeah. Would you rather go to this school or, without Dewey Finn being there, Horace Green prep? Welton or Horace Green? Uh, Horace Green, probably. Okay. Because Miss Mullins wasn't nearly the same level of, like, overbearing monster that Headmaster Nolan is. I feel like Miss Mullins, you could have some wiggle room. You could, you know, she, she was fairly agreeable at times. Yeah. Nolan is, no, that guy will, th- it's like he's looking for an excuse to throw these kids out. Yeah, 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 that's, that's good. And, and, and Horse Green is a co-ed. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, uh, Todd is very, like, he doesn't really talk. The other kids are trying to, you know, kind of ask him out to study groups and stuff, but he keeps saying, you know, no. Uh, Todd wants to be a writer. He doesn't want to be a lawyer like his brother. Because <laughs> the parents said, you know, oh, well, your older brother, he became a lawyer. So naturally you are going to be a lawyer too. But Todd doesn't want that, but he's not, he doesn't have the confidence to stand up for himself. The first day of classes, Todd and Neil experienced, you know, the various teachers at, uh, at Welton, like the Latin teacher who just rattles off Latin phrases, the trig teacher who insists that if you ever miss any homework, it's your ass in uh, not those words, but basically. And uh, they're all just the same, you know, the same brand of mean teacher that we all hated as a kid. And then they get to English class. And where they meet John Keating, who is a new teacher because the recent English teacher retired. So he's, this is his first year at Wilton. And he is very unconventional. And uh, <laughs> Keating walks in whistling and then leaves. Tells the kids, well, come on. And they're all like, oh, okay. Uh, and like the one by one, they leave the classroom and follow Keating down to the main hall where he gives them their first lesson on legacy. And uh, he shows them the display cases containing photos and trophies of the past students and says, you know, all of these students were once right where you are. They were, you know, they were kids. Their whole future's ahead of them. And now they're all dead. <laughs> so what do you, you know, what's your voice going to be? You know, we're only on this, uh, this place for a limited amount of time. So how are you going to spend it? I love that. So profound. And it's so simple. Just what do you want out of your very short life? Beautiful. Seize the, seize the day, boys. Yep. Do you hear them whispering? Carpe diem. <laughs> God. I love that. I love it so much because they're they're all kind of like they don't they don't know quite how to feel. This is the first time they've experienced anything like this with a teacher. Yeah, a few of them are like, "This guy is weird." <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, 
the characters are hard to keep up with. You know, we're going to introduce them very soon, but uh, Cameron is the one with the red red hair, and he he immediately is skeptical. You know, uh, right from the get go, we we know he's not going to be all in the entire movie. Yes, uh, this guy this guy's haircut is all time. It's incredible. <laughs> and uh, Keating had also told them that. Uh, they can call him Mr. Keating, or if they want to be daring, oh, Captain, my Captain. Yes. <laughs> a line Beautiful. A, uh, title of a Walt Whitman poem about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Uncle Walt. <laughs> Uncle Walt, yeah, comes up a lot. Uh, um, so Todd is immediately like, I love this guy, but he doesn't say anything. And uh, we meet some of the other kids, Knox over street. Uh, our Romeo for the for the movie, Charlie Dalton, who's very flippant and kind of a clown, uh, Stephen Meeks, who's kind of just is he's he's the, the the glasses kid, right? Meeks, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. he's the weird one, and um, Pitts, who <laughs> Keating keeps making fun of his name. I love it, <laughs> Pitts. That's an unfortunate name. Yeah, he's really tall. Yeah, and Cameron asks if anything. If uh, Keating's going to test them on any of that. Like, is this going to be on the final? Like, she'll think that. <laughs> uh, Cameron. The next day, Keating starts the class with a traditional teaching approach, has them open their textbooks to the Pritchard text, and has Neil read out loud the introduction. <laughs> and he, this introduction basically says, like, you cannot truly understand poetry until you understand rhyme and meter and tone. And then you divide by eight, carry the one, and if it if it checks out, it's a good poem. Like it's bullshit. And Keating says, you know, it's excrement. It's pointless. Like there's no way to measure emotion. You can't do that. So he tells them, rip it out. <laughs> and they're like, what? It's like, yep, you heard me. Rip it out. It's not the Bible. You won't go to hell for it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And he says, you know, this is a battle. This is a war. You're going to have to learn to think for yourselves. And they all rip out their introductions. And uh, (laughs) it's great. A few days later, Knox is asked to attend a dinner party at the Danbury household, friends of his parents, and he meets Chris and falls in love immediately, even though she has a boyfriend, like some jock asshole, and and he doesn't know her in the slightest. It's a... It's a weird relationship because he does nothing but stalk her and creep her. Yeah. And she, she chooses him. Like, I, I don't know. It just real life doesn't work out like that. No. Neil finds an old Welton yearbook with Mr. Keating in it and shows it to Mr. Keating. And uh, he's like, oh, was I ever that young? And uh, they want to know what this club he was in called the Dead Poet Society was. And Keating explains that it was a secret club dedicated to, you know, sucking the marrow out of life, to reading poetry aloud or, and finding that voice and embracing a love of life in their own way. And they met at an old cave outside the school. And Neil is like, oh, we're doing that. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting that up again. And, uh, Neil convinces the boys to join the Dead Poet Society and they meet at midnight to start their first meeting. 
Todd tells him he'll come along, but he doesn't want to read. He will not read aloud. He's nervous. He's camera shy. He won't do it. And uh, Neil's like, don't worry. You don't have to do that. And this is in the middle of their, like, science class. And the science teacher's like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> such a gruff asshole. <laughs> is, that a, is that a radio? No, it's a science, science project. Science project. Yeah. So good. <laughs> oh. Uh, so they arrive at the cave. The boys hold their first meeting. Knox shows up so he can build confidence. He starts learning poetry so he can woo Christine or Chris. And they start learning about rhythm and language and poetry and they learn in their own way and they're embracing this life experience and they're doing exactly what Keating is embracing. And I, you know, it's great. They're the only ones learning anything at this bucket school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their next poetry class, Mr. Keating makes the boys stand on his desk to see the world from a different perspective, encouraging nonconformity and freedom and telling, you know, sometimes you have to look at things a little different. Great advice. This guy's an awesome teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I think even um speaking speaking from personal experience, even if I didn't have a teacher like Keating uh like through a whole school year or something, even if some of these lessons, these outside the box, like you can you can learn and do this at the same time. You can, you know, I love you know, when they run and kick the ball and you're kind of like building up your aggression to, to speak, you know, and write poetry. Like that's so cool that he kind of takes an aggressive approach at it rather than we're going to sit on our desks and, you know, take, you know, take a moment to think of it. He like allows them to live life so that they can write. It's so cool. And ah, man, to be a part of like a dead poet society, you know, that's so, so fucking cool. Like the foundation of this movie even if Keating wasn't in it, if these kids just had a dead poet society, it's such a fascinating little thing that they do in this cave. I, I fucking love it. Have you written any poetry? Yeah, yeah. I like poetry a lot. I think, I think it's important to try. I think it's like a human thing that everybody, everybody should try out. Yeah. I don't think, you know, it's for everybody, but I think it, it, I think it can be. I think if you're open to just, you know, I love, I love when, uh, <laughs> what is that? That student says a cat sat on the mat, you know, and, <laughs> and Keating, Keating is like, Hey, you know, poetry can be short, you know, it doesn't have to be a bunch of big words, but don't let it be ordinary, you know? <laughs> and, and that's always been cool to me. You know, that kind of a line where you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You just got to feel something, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to feel it. And that's, that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he gives the class uh, homework. They have to write an original poem. It's going to be read aloud on Monday. And Keating singles out Todd and says, hey, I know this, is, this assignment's scaring you to death. See you Monday. Ah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that part so much. <laughs> uh, Keating's unorthodox teaching methods circulate among the other teachers. And they're all like, who is this? Oh, Yeah. That's one of my favorite scenes. They don't have it right here in this synopsis. One of my favorite scenes is when he's talking to the other teacher and he throws back his own, his own verse back at him. And he, he's like, no, Keating. <laughs> <laughs> While they're having lunch, you know, because he's, he's asking him about the noise that was happening with ripping the papers out. So you, you immediately, yeah, you can tell teachers are like, huh, this guy's, yeah, this guy's not, not, not typical. 
Nope. He's rocking the boat. And dude, of all times, the fifties, you did not rock the boat in the fifties. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, they're scorning his idealist methods. The Latin teacher <laughs> tells Keating straight up, you're taking a big risk in making your students think they are artists. And Keating says, you know, I'm only trying to make them free thinkers. <laughs> right here, the, the Latin teacher. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He recites a poet, uh, line from a realist poet to emphasize his point, and Keating recites another line. It is only in their minds that men can truly be free to us always thus and always thus shall be. He says, nope, that's mine. <laughs> oh, Keating. So yes. great. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the little, the little Rob Williams wink, bam, you know, you just, that, the, those are those moments where you're like, that's, that's the fucking gene right there. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. God, he, I love Rob Williams. <laughs> oh, he's the man. I love him to death. Neil, uh, tries to, you know, carpe his own diem and uh, tries out for a part in the play, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, that the school's doing. And this is in full defiance of his father's plan. So he doesn't tell his father. He forges his father's signature on a uh, letter of intent and gets the part. And Knox goes to a public school, uh, high school football game, sees Chris with her boyfriend, and is like, all right, that's the competition. <laughs> He's kind of insane, Knox. <laughs> yeah, he really is. But but uh, another one of my favorite scenes when he's riding the bike down the hill, just glorious, glorious scene. <laughs> but Keating's lessons, you know, the whole you know, sees the day. It's encouraging these kids to to do something. It's encouraging these kids to take a leap, to try something new. <sighs> Suck the marrow out of life. Exactly. Back in English class, Mr. Keating has the boys kick soccer balls while yelling poetry aloud. <laughs> He's Love doing it. like military marches and the headmaster's like, what is this? What the hell is this? <laughs> Neil re reveals he got the part. And uh, Keating then has the kids read out their poems. And he impersonates, he does a little bit of John Wayne, a little bit... <laughs> He does, you know, some Robin Williams. I love it. And yeah, uh, it's good. It's Good Morning Vietnam happening, you know, <laughs> in, in a classroom. And he has Todd stand up and recite his poem, but Todd couldn't do it. He tried. He couldn't write it. So Keating then tells the boy, make one up <laughs> right now. And uh, Todd uses a portrait of Walt Whitman on the wall as inspiration. And, and Keating kind of coaches him into making a poem. It's a really amazing ah it's a gorgeous gorgeous scene too you know you're you're watching this is another one where the camera is really moving and making the classroom come to life and yeah. that that po you know that poster you the camera kind of pans up at it or the picture of, of walt and you, yeah your mind just starts turning and you're with todd it's so cool here's the poem that he kind of it's just like explodes out of him he calls he says the first phrase that pops into his into his head when he sees Walt Whitman is sweaty tooth madman. He, he elaborates on that. He's a sweaty tooth madman with a stare that pounds my brain. His hands reach out and choke me. And all the time he's mumbling, mumbling truth, truth like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. 
You push it, stretch it, it'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it, it'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter, crying to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. And the class applauds him. And Keating says, don't ever forget this. Yeah, oh boy. It's a very powerful moment. And I, this is a scene that I think really could have uh, been beneficial for like Ethan Hawke getting a nomination. Yeah, this should have been the one they show, right? Is his eyes closed and him screaming, letting this just pour out of him. So beautiful. Yep. That night, the boys meet at the cave for another Dead Poets meeting. And Knox gets the courage to phone Christine, who invites him to a party at the Danbury home. And <laughs> Meeks, I think, or Cameron says, you realize she's not going with you, right? She has a boyfriend. And he's like, that's not the point. And I'm like, what is the point? He's like, the point is... She was thinking about me. <laughs> I love it. He's got a point. So good. Knox. <laughs> yeah. Knox thinking positive. Oh. <laughs> the following day, Mr. Keating teaches the boys to make their own decisions, not the, you know, the dangers of conformity. Todd, it's Todd's birthday, and he gets the same desk set from his parents that they got him last year. They don't even realize it. Neil boosts his confidence by telling him that he should just toss it. And <laughs> Todd decides, yeah. He hurls the desk set over, the, over the, uh, the wall. And Neil says, look on the bright side. He'll get a brand new one next year. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. That, scene, that scene's pretty tough after, you know, on a rewatch. Because, because you, uh, I believe that that's one of the only times, as far as we see, and he's such a young man, Neil is, that that's one of the times he's really himself. Yeah. Uh, like uh, being, being a friend, being a positive light, someone who kind of just, his smile is fucking contagious. Uh, his eyes kind of just like come closed, you know, and he's, his smile goes ear to ear. And so when he encourages him to throw that thing, it's kind of like a little bit of Keating is in him. Yeah. And, he, and he's totally, totally bought into the, I, I want to be me. I want to be Neil. You know, I want to be Neil and I want to find myself. And so when you rewatch this film, knowing what happens, you know, at the end, you, you just, you're like, damn, he should have had a lot more years where he could, where he could operate with that mindset. Sucks so bad. Neil would have become a Keating. He would have been a teacher. He would have been an acting teacher or something. He would have been just, yeah, he would have continued that legacy, but yeah, it is, it's heartbreaking. Truly, yeah. Knox goes to Chris's party that night, and uh, he's asked by several of the football players to join them in a toast to his brother, who he's not. <laughs> Knox is like, I don't know that guy. He's like, no, you're his brother. Let's have a toast. It's, I can't tell if they're fucking with him or if they really do think that he's the brother of this guy because <laughs> they're so drunk. <laughs> uh, Knox gets drunk finds himself sitting next to Christine on the couch, who's unconscious. He recalls Keating, uh, he recalls, you know, carpe diem. And this is not the kind of diem he should be carping because he, <laughs> she's no. unconscious and he just leans in and kisses her. And Chet's like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And knocks him out and says, you know, if I ever see you again, you'll, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And Chris is like, he didn't mean it. Knox leaves the party. And I'm, kind of on Chet's side for this one. I mean, you see some dude drunk kissing your girl who's unconscious. Yeah. Knock his ass out. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, whether he's yeah seizing the day or not, this guy needs to get his ass kicked. You are interrupting a date rape. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. It's weird how they play this with, like, Knox being the victim here. Like, no, that was, that was assault. <laughs> like, shit, man. <laughs> um, the day after, uh, they go to another Dead Poets meeting, and uh, Charlie brings some girls, and a couple of the other people are like, what are you doing? He's like, look, I want to get laid, okay? <laughs> it's not like, love, it's very obvious why they're there. Love, Nuwanda. <laughs> Yeah, he starts calling himself Nuwanda. And uh, Charlie then reveals that he wrote a joking and anonymous letter on behalf of the dead poets to the school asking that girls be admitted to Weldon. And he did this without consulting the rest of the dead poets, and they are pissed. They're like, you did not have the right to speak for the group. How could you do that? And he's like, relax. If they get caught, you know, I'll, I'll lie. And boy, does he get caught. The, the school takes this extremely seriously. And uh, Nolan, Nolan has a meeting with all the students, says this is your one opportunity to avoid expulsion. Come forward. Who knows anything about this? And suddenly a phone starts ringing. And everyone's looking around like, where is that? Camera pans over to Charlie, who's got a phone in his, in his lap. And he's like, hello, headmaster, it's for you. It's God. He says girls should be a welted. <laughs> oh man the sack on this kid <laughs> yeah winner Nwanda. Uh, I, I i i love i love that that tenacity um and i love when i love when rob williams uses the like if it had been collect it would have been daring <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh man that is so clever and and, and then he 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 makes sure that charlie knows that like hey keep looking you know, keep searching. Like you're Charlie, you're really like, he's, I think Charlie's headed for such a cool life because of his open, open mindedness to things. And I think Keating knows that he's just like, Hey, just keep your eyes open. But yeah, you know, like he tells him, don't choke on the bone. <laughs> yeah. Keating advises Charlie, you know, yeah. Like, you know, get what you can out of life, but also be careful because this school, you know, shit like this can get, can hurt your future. And you won't be able to attend my classes anymore. <laughs> but uh, Charlie, you know, it's like, yeah, you got a point. And Neil goes to his room and finds his father. And f dad is pissed because he just found out that Neil's in a play and went behind his back to do so. And he demands Neil leave the play. And even Neil points out, like, I'm getting all A's. This isn't affecting anything. And he's like, I don't care. It's not in the plan. And you lied to me you're out of the play. It's the one thing Neil cares about. Yeah. And he, it, that's the part that kills me. It's not affecting his classes at all. He's getting all A's, but dad is still not letting him do this. Yeah. It's, it's about uh, image for him as a dad. And it's about, yeah, this is my plan. And you went behind my back. Yeah. But, but you, you there's no answer for Neil because if he would have asked him, he would have said no. So I just, I, I feel, God, I feel so many emotions for Neil. Neil's the character of Neil. He's, he, he just, just wants to be in this damn play. It's not like he's committing to uh, like a sports team, you know, like a, like a football team is a huge commitment where you practice every day and games on the weekends. Like this is just a play that he's going to be rehearsing and then it's going to be over and then it's done. So 
yeah. I, I just, I, I've always just, I can't stand that, that domineering style. And I, I definitely can't stand narrow mindedness to what your, your child wants to do, especially if everything else is going well. Neil is asking for so little. He's all he wants is one, one little thing. That's all his own. And dad snuffed it out. Yeah. And you have that, you have that, um, quality from his dad that's like oh you know you don't know how good you have it compared to me well but that's that's kind of horseshit because he's trying to take one of the opportunities that you probably didn't have and he's trying to take it and run with it and you're denying him so what's the point what's the point of opening new doors for your children and giving them new opportunities if you're just going to take them away so i've always uh, every time i watch this movie i find new things to be angry with him about. <laughs> yeah, straight up. Neil then, you know, he's sad, he's he's scared, he's upset. So he goes to talk to Mr. Keating about the incident. And uh, he says, you know, my dad is making me leave the play. It's, it's all I want. And I don't know what to do. And Keating suggests, you know, you have to tell your, you have to, you have to talk to him. You have to tell your dad how you really feel. And Neil's afraid. He's afraid to come clean. He's afraid to, to be honest with his own father. But he does say something that convinces dad to let him have the play. And uh, he tells Neil, like, yeah, all right, you can have it this once, but you you have to focus everything else on being a doctor. That's the plan. (sighs) A few days later, apparently this was a lie. (laughs) I never, I didn't catch that. Yeah, no, yeah, he he definitely never wanted him to. I I don't know why he said that. Damn, that makes us even fucking sadder. I I assume that dad was like, all right, just this once. And then showed up at the end to be like, you know, and then Dan was like, all right, he's a bad actor. I guess we're not doing this. But Neil actually did just lie to his face and said, yeah, dad said it was okay. Ooh. And Keating, Keating, I think knows deep down when you look at his face in that scene, he's just like, Hmm. Why aren't you telling me more about this? Because you're just like, yeah, I can do it. Okay. You know, and like wants to leave. Yeah. Wow. You know, Keating, Keating, I think knows deep down, like something's up here. That's sad. I didn't, I never yeah. picked up. I didn't pick up on that. Ah, oh, damn. Uh, Nock goes to Chris's high school and embarrasses her by giving her flowers and reciting a poem in front of all of her friends. <laughs> and she goes to Welton to be like, what the hell was that? Uh, my boyfriend's hunting you down. You got to get out. You got to be careful. Knox is apologizing, but says, you know, if you didn't care about me, you wouldn't have come and warned me. <laughs> yeah. There, yep. Yeah. Positive Knox. So she accepts his offer to go to the play on a date. <laughs> How does he do it? And uh, at the theater, Neil gives a great performance. He, uh, it's a Midsummer Night's, Midsummer Night's Dream. He's playing Puck. And the play's about to end. He's about to give Puck's closing monologue. And he sees Dad in the back. And it kind of trips him up a little bit, but he does do it. He gets a standing ovation. Dad pushes through the crowd and tells Neil, you're done. Now come with me. And on the way out, uh, Neil confronts, I mean, Neil's dad confronts Keating and says, you know, stay away from my son. Stop filling his head with these ideas. And uh, at home, uh, dad tells Neil that 
because of his defiance, he's pulling Neil out of Welton and enrolling him in military school to prepare him for Harvard and a career in medicine. Nothing else matters. And Neil looks like he's going to confront his dad, but he hasn't the courage. He doesn't say a word. Instead, he waits till the middle of the night, gets his father's gun, and shoots himself in the head. And it's one of the most heartbreaking movie moments I've ever watched, especially on a first-time watch. Because you think, like, somehow he's going to figure this out. He's going to f- come to terms with his dad. And his dad, him and his dad are going to have a good relationship. Eventually, you think that. But no, Neil ends his life. He chooses, he, he chooses death over confronting his own father. That's how afraid of his dad he was. Yeah. Uh, I, it says right here, this, yeah, this is a tough one to talk about, right? Yeah. It says it's it says in the the synopsis on IMDb that uh, unable to cope with the future that like really, but really you know hurts you as like a you know you or I, two people who have had parents who have you know I went to a private school but my parents have very much, especially in my adult years, been very supportive of me creatively and, um, they they respect you know my hobbies and respect like the things I desire to do with my spare time. Yeah. And I know you, I know you come from a, a family that definitely wants to push you, even push you in the direction of being creative and make sure you explore those, those, you know, those open doors. So, man, when you're watching, watching Neil go through this, there, there is no out. There is no understanding. And it, it literally is a 10 year plan that his dad is about to put him on 10 years I, I couldn't do it either man I couldn't do it either it's so arrogant to think that you can plot out your child's entire life like that and just say this is what's going to happen and if you don't like it fucking tough <laughs> who the hell does he think he is <laughs> I don't know I, I really don't in the, the, mo- the mother um, you know in that in that moment she, she doesn't even really, try, you know, maybe on first time watch, you're going through these emotions, but she doesn't even try. She's just like, why don't you get some rest? Like, no, how about you talk to your son? You know, you know, how about you, you just put him through this traumatic experience where he put it all out there on the stage and all of his friends just were trying to congratulate him. And here's Keating trying to congratulate him. And he got ripped that, that opportunity in that moment, that experience as a kid. So no, you can't, you can't be like, go get some rest. It's going to be okay in the morning and we'll start your 10 year plan tomorrow. Like, holy shit. No, you just put this kid through the worst thing he's been through. So no, I, I just unacceptable. <laughs> and it makes me so angry. You know, this scene is supposed to make you feel all kinds of stuff. And I, I love that the film goes there, that it doesn't let you off easy, that it forces you to confront the realities of parenting and you know, teaching and all of those things and how important they are, you know? Well, I read in the trivia that um, Kurtwood Smith, when he was at the premiere, saw um, one of the kids who was in the movie and his dad, who was overbearing and ordering him around and seemed very much like his character. And then when the movie was over, he saw that father crying in the lobby because he realized what he'd been. And I really hope that this film got a lot of parents to rethink the way they treated their children. Yeah. 
it's, oh, it's really tough. Um, we then, dad, mom and dad find him and they panic, they freak out and they, it's, whew, I hate scenes where parents discover their dead children in any movie. It's horrific and I can't handle it. And this, this is one of the worst. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a less is more where you see Neil's hand with a gun kind of laying there and you don't don't really see his full body. And, you know, the mother is, you know, not my son. You know, there's no way. And the dad's saying, calm down, you know, calm down. And Yeah, it's never easy to watch something like that, something so traumatic for a family. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Dead Poets does not lack the – doesn't lack in the uh, poignancy category, that's for sure. No, it does not. The next day in school, uh, Todd gets woken up by the boys and they tell him that Neil is dead. And he runs out into the snow and just sobs. And they're holding him like, it's okay, it's okay. They lost one of their own. And it, it, it hurts. And now the school is looking for someone to blame. And they learn about the Dead Poets Society after Cameron reveals the, the club to the headmaster. And Dalton, Charlie, he punches Cameron for betraying them and he gets expelled. And uh, uh, Yeah, straight up. I would have done the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Cameron's defense of his actions is, you know, if we can throw Keating to the wolves and maybe our futures will be secure. Selfish son of a bitch. After all he did for them. And that's kind of what Charlie is arguing, you know. We can't do that. And uh, Todd gets called to Nolan's office where his parents are waiting. Nolan forces Todd to admit to being a member of the Dead Poets Society, tries to make him sign a document blaming Keating for abusing his authority, inciting the boys to restart the society, and encouraging Neil to flout his father's authority. In other words, Nolan is trying to blame Keating for Neil's death. Yes. parents... No, no, no. You'll never be the parents, but Keating. Unbelievable. And Todd tries to question this, and his dad is like, what the hell is this? Just sign it. Like, that's the only bit we get from dad. No encouragement from these parents for their son who just lost his best friend. Ugh, Jesus. This movie is very infuriating. Yeah, especially this last, yeah, 30 minutes. Yeah. So Todd signs it. He doesn't have a choice. They force him to. And uh, Keating is fired from Welton. He's forced out with no severance, no letter of recommendation. His career is basically kaput. And uh, the next day, Nolan arrives at the English class where he tells the students that he's going to be their new teacher until a substitute arrives to replace him. And uh, he tells the kids to open up to the uh, introduction in the textbook and um, Cameron's like well uh, we ripped it out and they're like no one's like what well here read from this and uh, Keating shows up to enter to uh, collect his personals he goes over and no one kind of just like dismisses him like just get him just get him and walk out leave he goes around to his office grabs his stuff and on his way out Todd says he stands up and it's like, they forced us to sign it. We didn't want to. Please don't leave. It's just, 
it's so heartbreaking, man. And Keating's like, I know, I know they don't, I know they did, that you didn't mean it. I know. Nolan orders Todd to be quiet and demands that Keating leave, threatening any other student who speaks up with expulsion. Yeah, God, fucking power tripper. If one of you makes another noise, I'm going to toss you out of the school. Like, calm down, dude. And Keating turns out, to, he turns to leave. And Todd finally breaks out of his, his lack of confidence and his self-pity and yells out, oh, captain, my captain, and stands up on his desk. <laughs> oh. Nolan yells at Todd to sit down or he's going to be expelled. And then one by one, the Dead Poets Society, except for Cameron, that motherfucker, stand up on their desk and yell out, oh, captain, my captain. Keating is touched. And Nolan is just standing there going, sit down to all of them. And he has no more power over these kids. And knowing that there's too many for the school to expel quietly, they just keep going. (laughs) Keating smiles at them, says, thank you, boys. And he leaves the classroom with tears in his eyes. Oh, it's such a powerful movie. How did this lose? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I could get through the Driving Miss Daisy plot synopsis, but this one is just so awesome. It's this enlightening story that kind of just takes you on a roller coaster at the beginning. You're laughing, having fun, figuring the characters out, and then it just dives deep and then comes back out a little bit. Just a little bit, though, not too much. A realistic amount. Yeah. This this movie is not. I wouldn't say it's unforgiving, but it's also, it, it's gray. It, it has moments of where all you can do is cry uh, out, of, out of, you know, fear and, and sadness. But then there's that moment, you know, thank you, boys. Thank you. Where there, it, there is a point to being positive. There is a point to teaching kids that things are, you know, things aren't what they seem. You've got to explore things for yourself. At the very least, Keating helped Todd find his voice. Ah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, nine out of ten, but it it's close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I give it a ten out of ten. I like it a lot. I, I had it on my top ten of the eighties decade list on our filmgasm podcast and I I adore it. I really really find it to be one of those that you just gotta see, you know. You especially if you uh dig you know, English literature, all those things, it's it's just great using poetry, that medium for for a dramatic film like this. It's awesome. Absolutely. And uh, I guess that takes us to this week in film. Yes. So here's some things that happened this week. Sam Rockwell is signed on to play Merle Haggard in a biopic. Very interesting. Uh, Merle Haggard is a country music star. He died uh, last year, I think. Yeah. Um, What do you think about that? I don't really know anything about Merle Haggard, but I love Sam Rockwell. So I'm probably in. Yeah, yeah, same. I'm in as well. I, I'm also not well-versed in uh, Merle's career, but, you know, a legend, um, regarded as a legend by a lot of people. So, you know, like you said, Rockwell is the one that entices me. Absolutely, man. Uh, then we had the unfortunate death of Oscar-nominated director Alan Parker, who passed away at the age of 76 from a uh, lengthy illness that has not yet been disclosed. Uh, he was nominated for his work on 
1988's Mississippi Burning and 1978's Midnight Express. And uh, he was a big, big guy in England. Uh, one of my favorites of his is The Commitments. I haven't seen that. It's a, it's a, it's a good movie. It's a weird movie, but it's good. It's very much about just like, you know, the Irish rock scene. Hell yeah. I'll check it out sometime for sure. Mm-hmm. So that was a shame. And then we also lost uh, two-time Academy Award winning actress and Hollywood icon Olivia de Havilland, who passed away at 104 from <laughs> natural causes. She won her Oscars for 1946's To Each His Own and 1949's The Heiress. She was also nominated for 1939's Gone with the Wind, 1941's Hold Back the Dawn, and 1948's The Snake Pit. She was uh, sisters with Joan Fontaine, and they had a long-standing beef that I don't think was ever resolved. Uh, damn shame. And finally, Regal Cinemas announced that they are going to start reopening theaters on August 21st. Uh, we've heard these, we've heard this news before. Who knows if this is the real deal this time? I know that Tenant is going to be, uh, released overseas this August or this month with a tentative September 3rd limited U.S. release. (sighs) We're the, we're the third world now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. I hope, I hope it all works out. I really would like to see a movie on the big screen again. I mean, you know, everywhere else is open, pretty much open safely. So why not movie theaters? I mean, there's ways to do it. There's ways to space out showtime. So you don't have a lot of people in the theaters. You, you know, you fill you, you don't fill every other seat. You block that out. There's ways to do this. There's ways yeah. to do this. I know because they've already reopened a lot of theme parks. So, well, you know, let's, let's try it out. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think someone's got to put their, put their foot out there, right? Whether it be Regal or whoever it is, and, and try this out. I know there's, there's theaters that are showing old, old films. Uh, I know that uh, Santico's Embassy here in San Antonio is showing Jaws tonight. You know, so they're, they're testing things out, I think. You know, obviously, this, the, the fear is that you, you, you release your movie theatrically and, and people don't want to go see it or whatever it may be, and so you lose money. Uh, of course, that's scary. But like you said, Connor, there's just ways we got to figure out how to adapt. And I, I hope there's a bunch of brains working in that direction. Yeah, I hope, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's not. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I can't be too hopeful these days, huh? <laughs> nope. But we'll see. Uh, this was great. I'm glad. I'm really glad you picked this movie. This was uh, cathartic. <laughs> yeah, no, I've always, I've always wanted, it's one of the films I've always wanted to just kind of talk about for um, an hour or so on a podcast, this kind of platform. So, you know, it's been very fun. Dead Poets Society is a great film. Uh, you know, I, I really like the parallels we kind of found with Whiplash from last week. But next week is, in my opinion, the biggest movie we've done by far. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, uh, meaning, as far as nominations, 12, 8 wins, and that would be 1954's On the Waterfront. Ooh, going old school Brando next week. Yes, next week we're traveling to the 50s. Um, you know, we're trying to jump around, keep it, 
keep it fresh. And th- yeah, this is a monstrous film when it comes to Oscars. So it's going to be heavy. We got a lot to talk about because there's a lot of categories to go through because it was nominated for damn near everything. So <laughs> this, this is a great film. Have you seen this one before? I've never seen On the Waterfront. Here we go. Yeah, we're going to you know buckle up. Uh, listeners, if you want, check that film out. It's not on a streaming service at the moment, but uh, it's $2.99 on Amazon and you know you can find it on DVD in various places. So try to check that out and come back next week and hang out with uh, me, Connor and Brando. Fantastic. And if you want your horror fix, we are doing the mangler this Wednesday. Uh, Sure to be a shitty Stephen King movie, but you know what? We have fun. (laughs) Yeah. Along with a, uh, a little movie draft. So if you want to have some fun on Tuesday, come on and listen to Filmgasm. Yes, indeed. And uh, thank you for listening. This was a very good episode. We had a lot of fun with this one. And uh, we will see you next Sunday. Peace.